0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants And they're both boys and girls Because I've seen them. Women and men Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Boys in Short Pants The 7th episode I will never stop doing that uh, This week we've got an interview for you Which we'll roll first And then uh, we'll talk in the outro About some uh, upcoming events And some uh, reader mail we've received excellent reader mail uh, We'll see you on the other side Hello, we're here today with Rob Silver, uh, one of the the profs, or the practitioner in residence at Carleton's uh, political management program, former political staffer, former public affairs professional, uh, former uh, national... Fantasy baseball champion? Current national fantasy. Current national I am the
1: 2016 national fantasy baseball champion. Do
2: yes. you have a sash, sort of like a, a Miss Universe uh, uh, sash that you get to wear around for that? It's more
1: of a crown than okay. a sash. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, no, I was, uh, was on a radio show with uh, with Tim Powers uh, on the the Voice of the Common Man, uh, the OCM. And he asked me uh, what it was like wearing a crown before Prince Charles uh, could get a uh, <laughs> nice. crown. So yes, no, I do have, a, I do have a, a, quite, a, quite a handsome crown for that title.
0: So thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we just wanted to talk a little bit about your, your background, both as a political staffer and as in your, your role in public affairs. Sure. Uh, do you just want to give us like a quick bio?
1: Uh, I'm I'm a lawyer by training, so went to uh, to law school. Worked, started my career working at a big Bay Street uh, law firm as a corporate lawyer, which is amazing as it sounds. Uh, and I left uh, I left the law. I left Osler's in 2003. Uh, I got the month off during the provincial election campaign. Worked in the war room. Uh, For the provincial liberal party, the campaign went well and went to work in the premier's office. So I worked in the premier's office for the first 18 months of government and then went back to uh, the private sector, worked at another law firm for for 12 months, and then I started my own uh, public affairs firm uh, in Toronto and did that for for about two, three years and then came together with two business partners to uh, found Crestview. So worked at uh, Crestview, which uh, has offices, had offices, still has offices in Ottawa and Toronto and had a really nice uh, broad-based practice uh, with my partners, had a wonderful uh, wonderful life and a wonderful business going on. And then of course my uh, wife uh, won an election uh, last October, a year ago October, and for a variety of reasons had to sell my shares in the firm and quit my job. So now I'm uh, six weeks away from being fully unemployed but still the practitioner <laughs> of residence, uh, at Carleton and uh, that's basically my professional life in a in a nutshell. But yes, I did work uh, at two different public affairs firms that I owned uh, whole or in part uh, of, and and the majority of that time at uh, at Crestview. So,
2: okay. so, you started as a McGinty staffer. If I did. um my, my Ontario politics is a little yes. hazy, if that
1: would have been in the early days of the McGinty government. It was the early days. I, you... I worked for eighteen months uh, for Dalton McGinty. Yes.
2: So what would you, what sort of your takeaway from being a young staffer in the early days of the McGinty government, sort of being a lawyer, one year of professional experience before you're sort of thrown into the premier's office?
1: Uh, it's a great career accelerator. Uh, it uh, was in some ways the smartest professional move I ever made uh, was uh, going to the premier's office. I, it was like finishing school uh, in lots of different ways. Uh, Who knows how uh, my career would have gone if I hadn't done that, if I just stuck with law. Uh, I was a corporate lawyer and uh, you can do really well uh, doing corporate law, but drafting asset purchase agreements and prospectuses and such probably wasn't where my passions uh, lay. So I learned a ton. And If you're going to do it, doing it when you're in your 20s, when you don't have children, when you don't have a mortgage, uh, when you can work long hours and uh, smile uh, the whole (laughs) uh, time and uh, take it to some extent uh, is a great time to do it. So I have no regrets for it. Uh, There were certain things that went on in the government after I left that, that I might not have agreed with, but if so. Not being there is better than being there. So why'd you leave? Did you just get tired of the lifestyle? A bunch of reasons. Uh, it was part part I wanted to go back to the private sector. Yep. Um uh, Parts, yeah. I, it, it was there was the right personal decision uh, to okay.
0: make. Sure. Uh, what was your role there, by the way?
1: Uh, I was policy advisor in oh, the cool. uh, in the premier's office, so I was a part of the policy. Uh, shop uh, record, reporting to a guy named uh, Gerald Butts. You may have heard uh, of yes. that. <laughs> no, no idea. No familiarity. Yeah. i he, not, not sure what he's up to now. Is he uh, friends with Steve Bannon, I think? Close uh, <laughs> friends, uh, apparently. Yeah, so Jerry and I knew each other from university debating. He's a few, he's four years older than me, so he was a, a bit ahead. He won to a couple of national debating championships while he was at McGill, and uh, I may have done likewise while I was at Western. So I knew yeah. uh, I knew Jerry from uh, from those uh, very cool days of university, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I was in the policy shop that he oversaw but there.
0: If you want to talk about it, do you did you oversee any policy files in particular that you thought were like, really interesting or?
1: Uh... Uh, I, I was in charge of energy policy back in the oh. day, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Everything was going really well when I left. Uh, yeah, so I was doing uh, doing energy policy in the, the Premier's office. So okay. that, was, uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, since then, a lot of uh, directions that the policy has taken that were not the policies in 2003 to 2005. You, you're
2: saying when you left, there wasn't like a 10-year plan for, here's what I want you guys to do in my absence, uh, and uh, there, there, I'll, I'll, there I'll actually, come back to there, this. There
1: actually was a 20-year plan. <laughs> yeah. uh, they just didn't stick to the 20 year plan they they put somebody named uh, george smitherman into the file and he had some different uh, ideas that he brought to the table and you ruined and your perfectly you well-crafted uh, energy I policy say I a person, <laughs> I, as, as a staffer i crafted nothing i gave advice the people whose faces were on posters uh crafted decisions as is their uh, their right thanks to having their faces on posters so i gave uh, advice and if you don't like the direction that anything's going as a staffer you have one choice which right. is to go somewhere else right so
0: did you? How did you get into um, like the premier's office? Like, do you, I imagine since you're in the war room, you had a sort of in in Liberal Party politics. But how did you sort of get into that
1: world? Yeah, I mean, I had been involved in the Liberal Party at the federal level uh, since I was 14 years old. Uh, but yeah, they uh, they were looking for for some volunteers uh, for the 03 campaign. Part of being in opposition is you don't typically have hundreds of people just sitting around. You need bodies. You need right. bodies to do advance. To do tour, to do all kinds of things, including uh, policy. So when you have somebody who uh, has uh, maybe not working uh, at Queens Park experience, but has some experience with various things, saying I will work for free for a month, uh, they're often receptive to that kind of offer in politics. So that was that was the end. And I knew Jerry, so it's right. yeah, it's not like I was uh, cold calling them uh, with that. But but so yeah, buts uh, buts helped me get in there. Cool.
2: So to transition a little bit to life after politics sure. or life a little detached from politics yep. and the lobbying and public affairs side, I feel like a lot of people take lobbying as a dirty word yes. and sort of the Canadians general impression of what lobbying is, is shaped by what we see of lobbying in the United States mostly. Yep. Um, what is sort of your take on the difference between Canadian and American lobbying and how, how they're different?
1: Uh well there, there, there are lots of ways that they're the same there is obviously it's a much bigger business in in washington than it is in canada there are more lobbyists there are more lobbyists being paid uh, a lot of money uh fundraising is still a major component of uh of lobbying in the united states so uh we uh it's a tiny part of it uh, here still, but it's 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 diminishing. Where in Washington, that is a huge component. You raise money for party X and that allows you to have a successful lobbying business. That is nothing to do with the success uh, that I had uh, in public affairs or lobbying uh, in Canada. Uh, so I understand entirely why my grandmother, when she hears the word lobbyist, uh, has all kinds of negative uh, connotations associated with it. The reality is uh, um, whether you're a big multinational corporation or you're a um, very noble not-for-profit, uh, having somebody who helps you communicate with government uh, is neither a, uh, a great thing and a noble thing nor an evil thing. Uh, what you are doing with that, what you're trying to achieve with that, is entirely dependent on the individual circumstance and the individual company or uh, association. It can be a true, you you can be looking for money to cure cancer, that can be lobbying. You can be uh, looking for money to give people cancer, that can also be uh, (laughs) lobbying. So in and of itself, uh, it is neither uh, laudable nor uh, evil like lots right. of professions uh it's it can be all kinds of things depending on how you conduct yourself and who you're conducting it on behalf of
0: yeah and i think dr wilson who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago joked that uh advocacy is lobbyists that you like yeah uh, versus <laughs> that's, a, that's
1: a that's a good line i may i may steal <laughs> that as my own now yeah.
0: <laughs> it is a good one um do you have any like just uh insights from that world that you think like made you like more successful as a as a advocate
1: or language, um, you prefer? that's I, first off i don't know that i was uh, who, who who can really judge how successful any of us uh, are at those things um i think that that um i was pretty I'm, I'm i think i'm a decent communicator and i think that the lessons that i bring to communications whether it's when i'm on television or when i was doing my job uh in public affairs are relatively si- uh, similar which is have a um a straightforward, clear, but hopefully compelling uh, message and communicate it in as effective, clear, concise a way as you possibly can. Now that sounds obvious, that sounds trite. Well, of course you should have a good message and you should communicate it clearly, but it's incredible how uh, often people, whether it's in public affairs or whether it's in punditry, uh, fail to do that. They fail to have a clear message. They're muddled in terms of what their uh, message is, what they're trying to achieve. And I think that I was, Uh, pretty good at focusing clients' minds on, let us be, is this really what you wanna do? Is this really what we're trying to achieve? Or is it one of these other 10 things? Because I've heard 11 different options. And until we know what we're trying to achieve, we can't possibly expect the person that we're meeting with in government or the people we're meeting with in government for them to know what we're trying to achieve. So I think that those kinds of basic lessons uh, served me and hopefully my clients pretty well. Uh, I also think that, and this is an amorphous type of thing, but where why would somebody have hired me as opposed to 10 other people? I think I give decent advice. Like, I think I'm pretty good at listening and then, and then kind of cutting through the BS or bullshit. We're allowed to swear on this podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't told, yeah, go ahead. uh, and, and given decent advice and that's sometimes type uh, tough to prove. How do I put a PowerPoint up and say, I will give you good advice? I don't know what the advice is going to be about, but I will give you good advice down the road. But that's what people are looking for. If I'm the CEO of a company who is not spending all my time thinking about government, is not thinking about my interaction with government all the time necessarily, but is an important part of what we're trying to achieve, uh, getting good counsel when I need it uh, is invaluable. and, And luckily, they chose to place a value on it by paying Uh, In fact, fact, it's not invaluable. You can actually quantify exactly what that kind of good advice is. What the market rate is. That good advice, one of the big misconceptions uh, that good advice was not based on me being some crazy insider because the, almost the entire time, basically the entire time uh, I was uh, in public affairs, Stephen Harper was prime minister. So it wasn't because Stephen Stephen Harper and I were only having biweekly calls. So <laughs> we were talking regularly, but not all the time. Right. So it wasn't based on me being having... Amazing access. I had no access. It wasn't me based on. It was just having decent judgment, decent instincts, and being able to put myself both in the shoes of the client and the shoes of the government about what they're trying to both trying to achieve and where the overlap between those two things are. There is a perception that uh, once you move beyond fundraising, that lobbying is selling access. That's what you're really doing. You're an insider. You're going to open the doors and and use all those inside connections to just make shit happen. And that's why I should pay you money. And I'll tell you, if a client thinks that's what they're buying with the lobbyist, there are times when they may be right and they may get their value for it. But 98% of what a a good lobbyist, a good public affairs professional does, has absolutely nothing to do uh, with access or relationships.
2: Yeah, I can really vouch for that. As a staffer under the Harper government, when I was working in a minister's office, uh, for a while I was in charge of scheduling and in charge of which meetings we took and which we didn't and sort of saw how that process played out. And the lobbyists I interacted with were – to a certain extent at that point, I wondered what the value added of lobbyists was because I swear the only thing they were doing was taking uh, their name – and putting it on a meeting request and sending it in for their client. Yep. And then one of the traits of the, the Harper government in terms of its interaction with lobbyists was to not have lobbyists in the room. Yep. And so the client would go in by themselves and the lobbyist would be left sort of in the foyer waiting. And so
1: I was always like – someone to hold your hand. Uh, right, so. So, so the reality is um, I understand. If I'm a CEO flying in from New York for a day of meetings in Ottawa – I understand why having somebody just do the legwork of plan, book my day, plan my day, fill it up with uh, meetings is valuable. Why? Yeah. Because I don't have the infrastructure. I don't know who I'm supposed to call. I'm the CEO. I'm not making my own phone calls, setting up the meetings. So there's something to be said about just, we have five hours of your time here. These are the people we want to be meeting with. I will pick up the phone and call. That wasn't my job. We had... We had junior people in the office but the junior person didn't know who you were as the schedule they were a professional and they say i'm calling on that i'm i am you know fred flintstone calling from crestview uh you know bob simpson from abc corp is in in uh in in ottawa on february 23rd and would really like to meet with director of policy or the minister uh in your office are you available in the following times that's grunt work yeah and and It's important, but it's incredibly low-value-added work. That's administrivia. And again, I don't know about your office at the time. I don't know about anybody in the current government's office. Most situations, if I am polite and professional, and I have somebody who has a legitimate reason to meet with a public office holder, whether they are an elected public office holder or somebody serving in a uh, staff capacity in a minister's office, most people will consider the meeting, will say, is this uh, important meeting for my boss? If I'm a staff person, is there uh, value here? And it's not, do I know this person? It's, it's yeah, the CEO is coming uh, here. This seems important. I understand why they want the meeting. This is the issue that they want to talk about. I will, of course, give them 30 minutes uh, of my time. Ministers are very busy. So it's not possible for every minister or, or obviously prime minister to meet with everybody. That's why they have staff. But it's very rarely that it's, oh, It's Rob Silver calling. I owe Rob Silver a big favor. I better meet with Rob Silver's client. That's just not how it works all the time. I'm not being Pollyanna-ish of it. I understand that there are times that that is how uh, it works, but it's the vast, vast, vast minority. So what's the value added? The value added is when that CEO is coming for the meetings It's explaining to the CEO why we're meeting with uh, the policy advisor. It's what are we trying to achieve uh, in this meeting? What's the argument that we're going to make in this meeting to get the funding to to cure cancer uh, or or cause cancer, depending (laughs) uh, on what you're trying to do? Um, And then the follow-up. Because it's not a magic meeting, a meeting with, you can meet with, with the prime minister. The prime minister is not a god and the prime minister uh, uh, is not just going to you know want, wave his hand and suddenly you've won the day. It, it takes uh, work. So what's an actual strategy to get it done? That's when you make the money. Some clients think it's, it's making the call and getting the meeting. Uh, they're dumb clients and there are lots of dumb clients uh, out there. But the client who thinks that calling you as scheduler and getting the meeting is the real value add. Um, they're stupid and they're wasting their money. For yeah, the like, r- for the most part, it's again part of the job setting those things up, but it's the stupid part of the job. It's the it's the dumb, dumb, dumb. Yeah, part there's of sort the of, the of
2: this myth that securing the meeting is the elusive part, and yeah. if you only have the right name, you get the meeting. Like, largely decisions based on meeting were based on the organization, whether or not the organization totally. and the issues of the day had absolutely nothing to do yeah. with who was requesting the meeting or their you know, conservative or liberal affiliation or anything along those lines, it was more or less a fairly objective choice. Now,
1: if I were, when I call you, if I was a jackass to you, if I burned you and or burned the minister ultimately and embarrassed you or embarrassed the minister, then the next time I call, the likelihood of it getting pushed <laughs> to the bottom of the pile as opposed to the top of the pile goes up, right? Like, I, I and that's, that's no different in public affairs or lobbying or any other re- line of work. If I'm consistently an asshole to people, if I'm consistently embarrassed people with their uh, boss, the likelihood of me being successful in that line of work is less. You can, you can be the one the exception. You can be the Kevin O'Leary that proves you can be <laughs> an asshole and still be su- somewhat successful you can be an in different and be president. uh <laughs> apparently it can happen. Uh, But for the most part, if I'm professional, if I show up on time, if I make you look good with your boss, if I I say thank you afterwards, all of those things, then it's not... Who did I donate money to or where did I you know, who did I vote for, who do I volunteer for? It's because I made your job a little bit better and your day a little bit better. Uh that and that's that's basic decency. That's not partisan. So oh.
0: one one question to suggest to me is um is this purely like this perception that, you know, it's the access kind of thing, is this purely Osmosis from the U.S. and that people, you know, watch The West Wing or whatever, and they're like, "Oh, House of Cards," and like, "Okay, this is how this works." Or was there a time in Canada where lobbying actually did work much more like that, and that's changed?
1: Uh, I think there was a time when it was uh, when the fundraising rules were different, when when bagmen played a different sure. role, uh, uh, and so on, where it was a little bit different. Uh, I think the, the vast majority of it, though, is part the U.S. Uh, and part ninety-nine uh, percent of Canadians will never interact with a lobbyist for good reason uh this is not the nature of their job or what they're uh doing so i have a i I may not be able to uh to practice medicine but i think i have a decent understanding of what the job of a doctor is uh and and lots of professions are like that i may not be able to do it um i may not even understand what they're doing but i've interacted with them most people have never interacted with a lobbyist. they've never talked to them about uh uh, what their job entails. So it's not that surprising that they would therefore have a cartoon character, caricature around what it entails. And again, I'm not trying to paint this uh, naive view of how the world uh, works. There are still lobbyists for whom they are just trading off of their name. There are, I know it, you know, we all know it. Uh, I just, Think it's a small minor. It's not the profession that those are individual practitioners for whom they are doing that.
2: So, so far we've been using, we've sort of been muddling the terms lobbying yeah. and public affairs. Do you want to draw sort of a distinction between them? Sort of describe how this Venn diagram between the two works. Sure. A a
1: public a, a, a public affairs campaign is me using um, non. So lobbying is hand to hand combat. I come to you, and either I or my client try to convince you directly through through arguments, through rhetoric, through a PowerPoint presentation, through some co- or through a letter, um, that you should do A or for me. And these are the reasons why you should do uh, A, B, or C. Uh, and that's that's again direct hand to hand combat. Public affairs is using tools in addition to, or instead of, and they often go hand to hand, to convince you to do something. So if I am running a social media campaign on why the government should cure cancer in the next budget, and I'm convincing people that they should tweet at the Minister of Health or the Minister of Finance, write a letter to your MP on why you should do that. Uh, I may have radio, if my budget's big enough, I may have TV and radio uh, ads about why we should all cure cancer in the next federal budget that's public affairs so there are, if you if depending on the issue there are some issues where it would be absurd to run a public affairs campaign if it's I am no trying <laughs> uh, if I am trying if I am a uh, company that is subject to a very specific niche regulation, and I need the government to change uh, this regulation in a very technical way that may be very important to me, but nobody else in the world cares about it, me launching a TV ad campaign on Change Reg 64256 under the Canadian Export and Import uh, uh, Act would be ludicrous. It, would, it just wouldn't make any uh, sense for that. Uh, that's, I need to go talk, in that case, probably to bureaucrats, not even politicians. Yeah. That's still lobbying. I'm going to meet with very technical experts on why changing this one clause is in in public interest and why it makes a lot of sense for whatever uh, reason to change that. That's lobbying. Um, Mm -hmm. Public affairs, there's a very good campaign going on right now. I have no idea if they're going to be successful ultimately in terms of uh, raising the amount uh, going on Amazon, going on eBay that you can buy off of there before you have to pay tax on that. Yeah, by like like the Canadian American uh, Border or Business Council. Yeah. Uh, that's a public affairs campaign. So Amazon, my former client, but I have nothing, I left long before they started this uh, campaign and and eBay and, and a bunch of those types of companies are convincing their customers that they should sign letters, sign petitions, do those kinds of things. I assume, I have no idea, I assume they're also doing meetings. I'd be shocked if they're not also meeting with finance meeting with the prime minister's office meeting with other people so those two things go hand in hand if it's done uh well but public the public affairs aspect is put pressure on government not because i'm so compelling in the meeting but i'm using other tools to do so and then
2: uh my follow-up question to this yeah. is the distinction between the types of lobbyists yeah. Oh, yeah and so lobbying is a very technical term and within the lobbying mm-hmm. act there's different definitions of lobbyists yeah. Um, some are in-house lobbyists. Uh, there's general lobbyists and then although consultant not a technical term, consultant lobbyists. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also sort of specialized lobbyists which are sort of a subfield of consultant lobbyists. Right. Do you want to sort of explain how this works? Jeez, I'm going
1: to I'm going to a guy going to your your, your <laughs> professional is going to hear this and start uh, cursing at me for butchering all of this. Um, so not the technical side
2: but sort yeah. of the distinction between sure. them so because they're just, obviously they're all in they, statute. They are very different.
1: Um, so, so many corporations in Canada have people who are responsible for the government relations for that, uh, company. It may be in some instances, the CEO, it may be, uh, somebody who's VP government relations. It could be, uh, head of corporate affairs, lots of different people, but also often, uh, CEO of a bank, for example, Canadian bank, uh, is not the lobbyist for the bank. TD Bank has a whole department of people whose job is government relations, but if I'm the president of the bank, I am meeting with prime ministers, uh, finance ministers, different officials at social events in formal capacity as the head of uh, the bank. It's not 10 or 20 or 50% of my time. It's a very small part of my time, but I am representing the bank with government uh, officials. So in that instance, from a, from a lobbyist re, re, uh, registration perspective, you have one registration for, I'm just using them illustratively, TD Bank, where the CEO, as well as all these VPs, as well as all of these officials are part of the registry. The head of government relations may be responsible for government relations, but I've always my view is if I'm that CEO and I am bumping into the Prime Minister or intentionally calling the Prime Minister because I want to talk about an important issue uh, for, for the bank or for the economy uh, more law, uh, broadly, my advice would be you should register. It's not a secret. even if you can even if your lawyers tell you but you're not meeting the threshold, you don't need to do it. it's like well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have every right in the world, in fact, it's part of my job to be talking about both macro issues as well as micro issues with government officials, one. So two, I don't want it on the front page of the Globe and Mail that I was doing something wrong because I'm not doing something wrong. So part of it's an abundance of caution. And three, because there's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's the most normal thing. People would be shocked if your answer was, I have never talked to anybody in the government, but I'm the CEO of a bank. I just don't want to talk to them. If I'm on the board of directors of the bank, I'd be like, I don't think you're really doing your job for it. So that's in-house. Um, consultant lobbyists are people who work at firms who advise uh, advise corporations, industry associations, or others on uh, relationships, but you specifically are not working for one client, you're working for... Uh, multiple clients, you're not an employee of the clients, you're uh, on crack contract. There are subsets that are industry specific. So the most common one in Ottawa is defense lobbyists. There is an entire industry that I, have. I, it's a mysterious, strange, mysterious uh, world to me that I know nothing about and certainly did nothing about. But there are a lot of former generals or, or military personnel, I should say, uh, people who worked in DND, people who really know that one area. And it would be very odd for Pepsi to call them up because they know nothing about Pepsi or how to sell Pepsi. Pepsi is really invested in the Canadian uh, Navy these days. Exactly. Uh, but if if what you're looking for is defense procurement, though, that's where you go because that's what they know. Uh, and that's but but so they're very niche focused, and uh, I have no idea how good or bad they are at their job because it's really just not a world that I. And then the other thing I find really interesting
2: about sort of the world of lobbying is conflict shops.
1: Yes. Uh, Do
2: you mind explaining what conflict shops are?
1: So uh, if I'm a big multinational uh, uh, lobbying firm, um, then the problem I have is if Pepsi calls me up and Coke has my parent co under uh, contract, uh, I can't take Pepsi as a company. Uh, if I've done work for, uh, for for Coke three years ago, I can't take Pepsi necessarily as a, as a client. So what some of the big multinationals have done is um, parent co's main co uh, in Canada is call it Helen and Knowlton uh, to just use them illustratively. Um, but Hill and Knowlton has all kinds of conflicts because of both domestic as well as uh, global Helen and Knowlton relationships. So you create, and this if this comes across as in any way shady, in any way untoward, it's really not. It's corporate structure. Uh, so you create a brand new corporate firm that is owned by the same parent co. So you have some of the global uh, conflicts, but has none of the domestic conflicts. And now this new company hires their own staff, manages their own firms, obviously to the extent their dividends that they're paying up, they pay them up to the same ultimate uh, place but that now maybe we can work for uh, Coke and Pepsi. I only use Coke and Pepsi because it's the most obvious. Yeah. If yeah. you work for one, you're not working for the other uh, sure. that you can name.
2: So it's setting up a firewall, sort of it an is. institutional but firewall. But it's, it's
1: as opposed to law firms that set up firewalls all the time uh, or uh, government relations firms who may try to convince a client, yeah, we can set up a firewall and you know, these consultants will work on your file and these consultants will work on your competitor's file. Uh, it's beyond just an artificial construct okay. which is ultimately what a firewall uh is it's a corporate structure uh firewall that is uh more more formalized uh, uh yeah. we have a different computer system we have a different everything from them
2: right except for the money The
0: money goes to the same <laughs> place all the money eventually <laughs> goes
1: to the same place anyways. where the
0: world goes. Um, also, I want to talk a little bit about just your... Like, you've done some political communications and that you were, um, you know, talking head on uh, power and policies for a long time. Yes. As well as, you, you know, teach uh, political communications class. So I just want... T- teach,
1: to- teach, 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 <laughs> teach. is a relative term. Uh, but but in, in air quotes, I teach. Yeah. Whatever uh, whatever it is that I do Wednesday mornings.
0: So, uh, we want to talk a little bit about just... Um, talking about sort of the lessons that, like... You've learned about political communication. Sure. talk like maybe. I don't know if you want to talk too much about the 2015 election, but I know you did sure. like debate
1: prep. I helped a little bit with debate prep. Are you willing to talk about that? Uh, we'll see where it goes. Okay. Uh,
0: <laughs> so just uh, like, how, what did that involve? Uh, debate,
1: debate prep or, or doing TV?
0: Uh, either or, actually.
1: I'll start with TV. Sure. That, 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 with that, that. that I know <laughs> it, uh, can do. Uh, so yeah, I was on Power and Politics uh, from. Started doing that in 2008-ish. Ooh, that's uh, a long time. 2009. Um, like whenever, two weeks after Evan Solomon, or a month after Evan Solomon uh, took over uh, Power in oh. Politics. So I, I don't even at all get to a certain age. These, these all become blur. Uh, until uh, November 4th, uh, 2015. <laughs> uh, that date I remember. Uh, my last my last show was the day the cabinet got sorted. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so I did it. It was a ton of fun. Uh, started at I, this. I, I, do you want funny stories of how, how? How Rob? How did you get on power and politics? Uh, people ask. Uh, <laughs> the reason I got on power politics was a guy by the name of Corey Tanik. Uh, some people may recognize the name Corey Tonight. He was former director of communications to Stephen Harper. Did,
2: did he say that if Rob shows up to Power and Politics with his uh, with his on, pants on, then he'll be, be he'll be doing a fine uh, job? Uh, and
1: he eventually uh, <laughs> ran the Sun News Network. No, because Corey, um, Corey. So Evan Solomon takes over the show. He inherits a lot of uh, panelists uh, that his predecessor, who you know, was a legend uh, in the business and had been there for ever had. And Corey was very much of the view, uh, we need new liberals on these panels. It's, it's we need new fresh. And, and Evan being uh, in a kind of a rabbinical scholar type of way as he is, uh, he's a very thoughtful guy. He said, I'd, I'd love to get some new people, Corey, just give me some names. Like, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. Uh, so Corey, who I had known, Corey worked in the premier's office in Ontario in his past past life for Mike Harris. And then he went on to be a lobbyist for the Canadian Renewable Fuels Association, the ethanol lobbyist. Hmm. Uh, so he came up with, uh, he was Mr. Corn Bob. <laughs> uh, that was his main claim to fame. He was a very good lobbyist, uh, but he he created the mascot for the for the <laughs> ethanol industry. So I dealt with him when I was in the Premier's office and, and got to, we're, we're close, close friends, but but got to know uh, Corey a fair bit uh, that way. And he suggested me. And... Uh, Who knows how the future works out uh, counterfactually, if if he never says that. But Corey brought me, basically brought me on and did that. Did CTV with him a few times as well. And then uh, Corey, again, went on to do uh, Sun TV. So he left, uh, but I stuck around CBC.
0: Yeah, what were the sort of highlights of your of your time there? And like, what did you like doing about it? Did you like doing it? Uh,
1: I loved it. Uh, if people ask me, do you miss Crestview? I miss Crestview. I miss my business partners. I miss lots of things about that. But I really miss doing TV. I miss doing TV way more than I miss being a, a government relations uh, professional. Uh, it was a fine life. It was good income. I liked Again, I love the people I was working with at Crestview. But um, I don't... Truly miss government relations. I, I missed doing television uh, a fair bit. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I did it for no money for the first uh, many many years. It cost me money because I had to park in Toronto, uh, <laughs> so it was costing me money each week that I did it. But it was fun. It was uh, it was fun uh, going in there at you know five o'clock and whatever the news of the day was. Uh, especially when you're in opposition. If you're in government, you feel a certain obligation to to, to defend. When you're opposition, you 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 are a free agent. You can say do whatever, whatever you, you can do whatever you want, and you're as accountable uh, as accountable as you are. So if you say something stupid, if you if you make no sense, then you will get uh, people will rain down on you. But that but you're accountable ultimately to yourself, and it's, it's your third party. How much you you do, what you say on TV that day is not going to make things any worse because you're the third <laughs> party. Um, whereas government is, uh, I assume, different. I was never on TV. Uh, literally, my last day was the one day we're in government. That was a pretty good day. So November fourth, <laughs> November fourth, I defended the government just fine because it was the cabinet sworn in day. Uh, it, it would be different uh, in government, um, and then if I ever do start doing it again, it would, will be different. But uh, uh, yeah, I miss it a ton. It's a lot of fun.
2: I mean, based on the decoration of this office, have you ever considered uh, going on TV for maybe a home decor show or something, uh, <laughs> something along those lines? This is, this I, is, I think you'd be
1: fantastic at yeah, it. White, white walls, uh, very, em- empty. Very minimalist, uh, spartan possible study. Spartan, maybe serial killer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's
0: totally empty bookshelf in the corner. Exactly. It's good. Uh, do you want to talk about the debate prep aspect of it?
1: Sure. Uh, I was not in charge of debate prep or anything uh, more than that. Uh, I helped uh, play. Uh, so the first debate during the twenty fifteen election, if you remember, was the McLean's debate uh, right. yeah. that uh, Paul Wells was the moderator uh, for. So I played Paul Wells in the uh, in the uh, some of the debate prep for before that uh, debate. I was a much meaner, uh, petty. Uh, uh, dickish Paul Wells than actual Paul Wells. Uh, how how of, method of actor do you go on this? Uh, do you do you dress up as Paul Wells? Do you put the glasses nah, on? I didn't do the full the full in costume uh, <laughs> version, but certainly spent a lot of time thinking about what we thought were the types of questions and we had the broad subject areas. So energy in the environment, you know, the, the economy, what those types of. 100,000 foot questions knowing that energy and the environment is going to be a topic you could make some predictions that pipelines you know carbon pricing those kinds of things were likely to be asked you could get absurd of just picking the most random of topics that are almost certainly you know Uh, almost certainly never going to be asked. And you want to cover the gambit because you're trying to prep your candidate. So you want to be prepared for the absurd oddball candidate, but you want to spend most of your time asking what are your views on pipelines and how to get pipelines built in Canada because that's more likely to be uh, the topic. Uh, Part of uh, leader debate prep uh, as opposed to local campaign and local election camp is on the one hand you want to beat them down. And you want it to be uh, so much worse uh, than it actually will be the night of. And on the other hand, you don't want their confidence to be so shaken and such a uh, crisis of confidence, uh, to use the West Wing uh, term, that they're in their own head thinking, my god, these two people and the moderators are going to destroy me because that's not how it's going to be. So it's a bit of a balance. You're also obviously um, not. It's the single biggest mistake that pundits uh, make when they're watching political debates, whether it's in Canada, the U.S., or otherwise. It is not a university debating uh, round. You're not trying to beat the crap out of the other guy and win, quote unquote, uh, the debate. Uh, if you did that, all of these guys could could do it. Stephen Harper could have done it of just swinging wildly and scoring points. It's why the boxing analogy beyond just being hackneyed at this point is wrong. Uh, What you're trying to do uh, in those debates uh, is two things and really only two things, which is people who are already voting for you, confirm and motivate those people. People who might consider voting for you, try to convince them that they should be more likely to uh, vote for you. Uh, And what motivates or convinces somebody to vote for you is not Typically, it can be, but not typically. My God, that was a brilliant beatdown. Blood was squirting from his head by the end. <laughs> he was so aggressive and such a dick in that debate. I love that man. I want him to be, yeah. or she to be, our next prime minister, or our next yeah. uh, president. Well, that uh, went
0: really poorly from Mulcair in that debate. It did. Uh, it tried to kind of do that around the Quebec thing with the, you know. Yeah, uh, Mulcair,
1: Mulcair. was. Uh, it was a sign of things to come. It was. He was yeah. a hot mess <laughs> from lots of different perspectives. Um, but it's why during the practice debates, and this is not a liberal thing, these are all the leaders, you're videotaping, uh, the practice debates, you're focus group, uh, testing what different answers work, what different answers, uh, didn't work. Body language, uh, is incredibly important. You know, watch, watch a leader's debate with the sound off, just in terms of what Mm -hmm. the impressions are that you're getting on who looks like they're doing well, who looks like a prime minister, which is a tough concept, right? We have certain... Uh, prejudices certain biases of what a prime minister is supposed to look like not all candidates fit in that uh, archetype and so you need to make sure that what works uh for your candidate uh is working but it's who's working with that target groups and the target people right. women women but not just women women in southwestern on so all of those things so it's a it's a complicated art, uh, and it's not science. Uh, and again, I, I'm not trying to claim a bigger role than it. There were, there, were, there were people responsible for it, and ultimately the leader performs or doesn't perform uh, on the day of. Uh, but you're always trying to achieve certain things which are not obvious, uh, obvious uh, on uh, at home. For that first debate, uh, the risk for the Liberal Party in that debate is if the headlines coming out of that first McLean's debate had been... Uh, There were two potential prime ministers on stage today and we're really sorry, Mr. Trudeau, you weren't one of the two of them. It was easy to see how the campaign uh, hits a fork at that point and it becomes a two-party race between the Conservatives and the NDP and the Liberals are desperately trying to climb up a ladder to get back into the conversation, to get back into uh, consideration. Uh, That sounds absurd now, given how the campaign actually uh, plays out. It's ludicrous. It was not that ludicrous in August uh, 2015 that if Tom Mulcair shows up and has a strong debate performance, he has Justin Trudeau lying on the mat, literally bleeding out of his ears, and he had his foot on the liberals' throat, and he, for a variety of reasons, let the liberals get off the mat And that McLean's debate. And again, I take zero credit for this at all. It was the leader, uh, ultimately, uh, and the, the people who were actually doing the hard work, but um, but for that whole month of September, then after kind of late August into September, when it was the three-way tie, yeah. and everybody was like, "My God, this is so boring. Nothing's moving. It's you know every day the Nanos poll. It's it's the Gordian knot. I <laughs> was incredible and, anxiety and <laughs> uh, And it's like nothing's moving. Nothing move. Nothing's moving. For the liberals at that point, um, it was this is fantastic because we could we knew we were dead and we could certainly be dead. Three-way tie is awesome right yeah. now given what the counter uh, factual was so that first McLean's debate um was a key pivot even though he got better in the other debates and and he didn't win quote-unquote the election that night uh there was a real possibility of him losing the election and sure. tom will care even though he didn't know it at the time uh he lost the election that day
2: for more information on debate press
1: Prep strategy. You can go to www.robsilver.election.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah. dot, dot com for a reasonable fee um, uh, fifty nine ninety nine. You can subscribe.
0: So one oh, kind of broader question, uh, just because you, know, you yeah. you're a communications thinker, so what's something that each party <laughs> Think, thinker, thinker. <laughs> like Hegel, you know, Marshall McLuhan, yes. what, theorist. What's something that each party did really well and really poorly in that election?
1: Jesus. Um, Stephen Harper. Uh, what he did really well is, while um, I, th- I, as in some ways bad in retrospect, a campaign as they ran, um, he still knew to the end who his voting base was. His problem was there was five percent of the base that wasn't there anymore. Seven percent of the base geographically in some important places, but. He still knew on most days, these are the people I'm talking to. And from the day he became leader of the Conservative Party until the day uh, he left as leader, with very few exceptions, he never lost focus of these are the people who I'm actually talking to and these are the people I'm not talking uh, to. That's really hard for political leaders to get into a place where they are both confident about that and skillful at that. And he did that very well. Uh, I think his problem was the messages the messages he was using so everything being said uh the message he was using was never going to get him the next five percent he needed both the ndp to be much stronger uh which i'm sure was very frustrating for him in the campaign because they just they weren't and two for mr trudeau to to mess up to extent that people by default went back to him Mm -hmm. and that's not a great strategy when you're dependent on others for your ultimate success that's not really a strategy, that's a hope. Right. And I think that was the problem. There may not have been an answer to it just given the environment and, and 10 years in. So I'm not saying it was an easy problem, but I think I think that's what he did uh, well and uh, had a challenge with in 2015. For the NDP, everybody talks about the Nikob. It wasn't the Nikob. Uh, it wasn't anything like that. And the numbers back that up. Their problem was they as I said around the, the, the McLean's debate, they had the liberals dead and they needed to wake up every single morning until a week before the election with one goal and one goal only. How do we keep Justin Trudeau on the mat? How do we keep them down? And they need to pretend a little bit that their, their real enemy is Stephen Harper and the conservatives, but they needed to be obsessive About the only thing we're focused on today is how do we make sure that the liberals have a bad day. Because if the liberals had a bad day today, we had a good day uh, today. And for whatever reason, um, in August, they made a very conscious decision that Trudeau's done. Let's turn our guns at the conservatives. And... There are parts of the country, obviously, in British Columbia and, you know, really small number of ridings where the conservatives and the NDP are main uh, are, are each other's uh, main opposition. But you can count them on a couple of hands. And certainly at a macro level, it's just not the way the campaign works. And for whatever works, you know, again, we live in times where you can't count on anything, where everybody is fluid. There are We are not partisans for the most part. So I don't want to overstate that. But it ultimately played out that way. They let the Liberals get back into the game. And then once the liberal that, Liberals... That, so what is the critical mistake they made? Was letting the Liberals get back into the game. Because once they did that, uh, then it was game over. And I think part of it was they dramatically overestimated the appeal of Tom Mulcair. And dramatically underestimated the, the appeal of Justin Trudeau. That sounds right to me. So, <laughs> so there, it, I'm not suggesting that they weren't smart that they didn't have a strategy they had all those things it was just fundamentally flawed uh of the theory of case that they were running and but so that allowed Nicob uh to to uh, hurt them that allowed a strong performance by justin trudeau to to kill them but they needed to get to thanksgiving and on thanksgiving do what liberals normally do in campaigns, which is, look, the liberals are at 15% in the polls. It's either going to be Prime Minister Tom Mulcair or it's going to be uh, Prime Minister Harper. So now if you want to defeat Stephen Harper, we're the only choice. And do that in the last 10 days, collapse the vote and and ride to victory. But not before the last week, 10 days. GOTV uh, time, make that your final argument, not your lead argument. So I think that was... Uh, the big mistake, and I, I don't think there's anything that they did very well uh, because of that. And, and I'm biased on the Liberal campaign, obviously, but I, <laughs> but, but what the Liberal campaign in the, in the first instance did pretty right, uh, pretty well is they had a faith that their leader was going to be able to rise to the occasion, and they mm-hmm. made a big bet. And if Justin, uh, if the Prime Minister. Uh, flails if he yep. has a rough campaign, then uh, we're probably not sitting yeah. here talking right now because right. I still have a job in Crestview. <laughs> 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 All right, I think for time we're gonna have to leave that there yeah we'll we'll, we'll do part two some other time uh, yeah absolutely we'll, to, we'll talk about other things. yeah, Thanks so much for coming on any anytime.
0: Thanks once again to Rob Silver for uh, for his time. He was a fantastic guest. Yeah,
2: I think everyone has a little better
0: grasp of how lobbying in Canada works now. And once again, I think just one of the snazziest interior decorators <laughs> on the Carlton campus. Literally nothing
2: on the walls. Yeah,
0: it was pretty good. Was pretty kind of bleak. Um, we love you, Rob. Uh, so this, uh, just to tease the upcoming content, next week is the the Manning Conference, Manning Center Conference in Ottawa. Correct. Uh, this is an annual conservative extravaganza featuring uh, all the hottest conservative trends, including. Uh, Stoning of witches. <laughs> Should we bring it back? No. Uh, in all seriousness, all they do is rage about uh, deficits, and uh, no, I'm probably not the best person to talk about
2: this. I, I mean, it's one of the big uh, conservative conferences of the year. Um, the lineup this year is pretty mixed. Um, That's a I'll, generous way to put it. I'll hold my judgment until the end. We'll see. I know they a little,
0: little Trumpy this
2: year, uh, especially between uh, between my friends. I haven't heard a lot of excitement about it, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We next will be week.
0: very excited to go, and uh, if you are there and listen to the spot podcast uh come come talk to us we'll be we'll be there having fun uh we definitely want to record some interviews so if you are someone who is important and listens to this podcast (laughs) definitely come talk to us we can interview
2: So, so many of those i remember uh last year at manning they have, sort of as everyone does now at the conferences, the live screen with all the tweets on them. Oh, hell yeah. And, like, the people who tweet the most using the Manning Conference hashtag get bumped to the top. We like, should definitely do that. Number one was Jerry Butts. Hell yeah. It was so
0: funny. My man! Jerry
2: Butts <laughs> slamming the conference, and he was on the top of the scoreboard like the entire day. I mean,
0: why would you not do that, right? <laughs> That's just easy. Uh, no, but yeah, in all seriousness, the lineup this year is uh, interesting and mixed. I think there there is a certain Trumpy influence of... Uh, no less than i think three separate two or three separate instances of panels and discussions about uh islamophobia or rather no quite the opposite actually the threat of radical islam uh creeping sharia uh which should be good uh we've got some about a conservative free speech on campus yeah uh, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, i think uh is it jordan peterson i think is one of the yep, speakers that'll Yeah, that'll be fun uh, we've got uh, Gerald Deltel and someone else doing uh, a panel on def- no debt in French, and then the next day it's deficits in English. So that'll be good. We're getting both... uh...
2: Gerald DelTel is a uh, very compelling speaker. I will be honest uh... with
0: you. I saw him a lot at the electoral reform committee over the summer when I would go to the hearings. And he was utterly charming. Yeah, (laughs) like just Like, very, very folksy. He's definitely one of the strongest people on the conservative bench right now. I came away with a very high impression of him. I was like, yeah, this dude... I mean, I totally disagree with his politics, but I was like, personally, I was like, yeah, this guy is incredibly charming. Uh, So... Good on you. Yeah, I don't know anyone who has a negative word about Gerard yeah, Deltel. He, he was pretty great. Uh, also, yeah, well, we got to share this reader mail with you. Um, Reddit is a, a wonderful website on the internet uh, that features great discussions about a variety <laughs> of topics that no one should ever go to because it is an awful cesspit of hatred. Um, but Our Canada Politics is a, one of the... good. It's a good Canadian politics subreddit. The discussion tends to be a fairly high quality. And uh, someone posted a link to one of our episodes there. Uh, it was like, hey, this is a good podcast. You should check it out, which, you know, cool, do that. That That's great. You know, we th- also think it's a good podcast that you should check out. Uh, some readers were perhaps uh, less than enthused about what is very clearly a joint CPC-NDP psyop <laughs> uh, to discredit the government. I'll let Etienne... Uh, Shall I read it? Yeah, start reading this for you.
2: The show right now is near unlistenable. In its present form, it's a CPC partisan and an NDP partisan talking nonstop stop or sorry, talking shop and taking turns bashing the Trudeau government with all the balance and perspective to be expected from two partisans doing that. They really need to add a third wheel to this tricycle and bring on an LPC, Liberal Party of Canada partisan, if they want to grow and prosper and gain a lasting audience. I yeah. mean, the but quick the quick take on this, because I'm, I'm going to feel the need to push back on this, is just inherently not everything in life needs to be perfectly balanced. Like... The, the opinion that you can't have political commentary without every side of the uh, spectrum represented, I think, is inherently flawed. Well, it's just I, stupid, I don't think, stupid bullshit. I don't think any podcast I listen to, any political podcast I listen to, has, you know, alt-right speakers as well. Well, like, yeah, right? like Voxes the Weeds. Yeah, boxes the weeds, weeds, right? You have, featuring, like, yeah,
0: Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein. Richard Spence. Basically the same opinions. Uh, and then you don't have, like, Himmler-Pepe-420, like, jumping in being like, actually, uh, deport the Jews, like, and, right? It's just, like, n- not everything actually needs an extra voice. And uh, anyway, like, the liberal government actually has a fairly large communications budget in the form of the federal government, as well as their own very generously funded party. The, the other problem was so happening. They don't, they don't need us. You know, they're doing fine. Yeah. they' their me- poll numbers. Their
2: message is very well communicated, as opposed to when you're in opposition, it's always sort of harder to get your points across. Um, but even in doing this, I don't think our intent is to do partisan hackery. I think we're trying to be not nonpartisan, because we've obviously identified as, ourselves yeah. as partisans, but just even self-critical when yeah. uh, when we feel the need to be, or critical of each other's parties. Um, but I also will try to take the liberal perspective every now and again and, you know, do a reasonable defense where, where warranted.
0: Yeah. that's uh, because the liberals and conservatives are both capitalist running dogs, so of course. Uh, <laughs> there, there you and, go. Uh, liberal, what's the slogan? <laughs> uh, liberal Tory, same old story. There we go. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, I mean, like, it's kind of a bad joke from the, the NDP side. It's, it, I mean, honestly, it's, I don't really drink that Kool-Aid that much, but, uh. So yeah,
2: j- just to push back and uh, in our in our own defense, it's not like we're averse to having liberals on. We've um, had so, like all our guests so far. Have yeah, liberals. we just had Rob Silver, prominent liberal pundit, talking we, to your uh, ear for like Gen-
0: three quarters of an hour. Or
2: Jennifer Robson also has some liberal roots, and we're looking forward to having more liberals on in the future. Yeah, so if you
0: say, if you are a liberal, want to come on the show.
2: This uh, the same individual who uh, sent this piece of <laughs> yeah. fan mail I, also I
0: unwisely chose to respond. <laughs> uh, never do that. Um, I said, always oh, nice to hear from a fan. To which he replied, and a chance pulling it up.
2: Uh, so the thread here, but the most, I think, interesting part of it is where we were asked our, uh, our conflict of interest and whether or not we were big, uh, big party shills and we were getting money or in-kind donations or support from either of the parties, which sure. I can safely say... At an operating budget of uh, uh, under $100, <laughs> <laughs> we are absolutely not. Yeah,
0: I wish we were. That'd be awesome. I, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, between him, between the NDP and George Soros and the conservatives, like from going all the protests and stuff, <laughs> I would be fucking flush right now <laughs> if those guys were paying out. Yeah, Soros, you owe me, buddy. I uh, hope you listen.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it's just two people who live across the street from each other yeah. recording on a microphone.
0: We have good patter. Uh Yeah, so that's good. Uh, Definitely hit us up on Twitter. Accuse us of being chills, uh, and send us money. Alternatively, if you feel like if you feel the need to like counterbalance the uh, the fact that you perceive that the uh, the liberals and or sorry the NDP and Conservatives are paying us, send us money. That will decrease their (laughs) influence, and will be like way more nice. Will be way nicer to the liberals. I was gonna say liberal partisans. Send us money.
2: I was gonna do the uh, the Twitter call out where if you ever think that we are being. Uh, incredibly biased or some side of it is uh, just completely misrepresented feel free to tweet at us we are uh, very engaged on Twitter we'll make
0: fun of your tweets on air
2: and then uh, I guess in closing here instead of asking you to rate and review which has been going reasonably well actually do that though well yes but my my, my call to action as a communication staffer would call it is uh, for you to tell a friend just tell a friend about the podcast you're listening to yeah Pitch, uh, pitch your favorite podcast we have uh, another one that we'd like to promote a little bit who's uh, another fellow canadian uh, political podcaster which is politicoast yeah
0: does bc issues mostly but uh, ventures into federal turf once yeah
2: i've been listening to some of his podcasts i've yet to make up the entire catalog because uh that's there's, fair it's uh, cur- yeah there's, there's quite a backstory but yeah. yeah
0: that's fair But yeah, definitely give that a listen. Uh, Give us a rate and review, as the Jan said. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next week, hopefully with some hot content fresh from the Manning Conference. Perfect. Thanks so much, guys.